The following message was given to the North Young Adult Group at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church slash Young Adults. All right, today I'm going to start a series that's going to take us through May of 2023, I believe. Um, so it's going to last, well, I'm going to only meet once a month, and so it's like six or seven uh, uh, lectures, um, and I'll do the first one, and then um, I hope I can remember, Nick Brazy's signed up, Ryan Denbeck is signed up, Ben Patterson is signed up. Um, I might be forgetting one or two, but we have a couple of the elders of the church already already signed up, already preparing, already ready to go with this series. Um, the topic of this series is joining God through loving and serving others. Um, and the big push is going to be loving and serving others, what that looks like, how we live that out, and then the effects of that on our life. So I'm going to argue there is joy in God found in giving your life for others. All right, so that's the, the main idea, and then that will be fleshed out. So, And to do that, I just want to start with some basic theology that this church is built off of, which is Christian hedonism. So I'll hit on some of the points of that right now. And to start, I just want to talk about why did God create the world? Why did God create the world? Um, this was a big topic in the 17th century, and philosophers debated this question. John Locke, Anthony Cooper, Francis Hutcheson, Spinoza, George Turnbull, um, they were coming up with all sort of, sorts of answers for this question, why did God create the world? Um, and I want to talk a little bit about what Jonathan Edwards uh, said about this question. He wrote his thesis, the end for which God created, or his dissertation, the end for which God created the world. And he lists, whatever your answer to the question is, it has to meet four cri criterion. Alright? The first one, when you're answering this question, why um, did God create the world? Is that the slide? Yeah, why did God create the world? The first criterion is that whatever the end is, whatever the answer is, it cannot entail a deficiency, dependence, or mutability in God. So whatever your answer is, it can't entail those things. God is unchanging and does not need or lack anything. Uh, the verse, God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything, for he himself gives life and breath to all mankind. So this answer rules out anything like God was lonely, or God wasn't happy, or God was in need, God, there was some lack in God, uh, Edwards rules that off the table in his first criteria. Whatever the answer is, it can't entail some sort of deficiency or in, in God. The second criterion, and I think these first are the main ones, is that whatever the answer is, it must inherently be valuable before God creates the world. So before he even creates the world, whatever your answer is, that thing has to be inherently valuable, ultimately valuable, before God even creates it. That's his second criteria. And right there, so, so say you have those two, um, the first one being uh, it can't entail a deficiency, the second one has to be inherently valuable. What are your possible answers for the ultimate end 
the richest doctor in the world. What does that leave you with? Anyone want to shout shout out what? Because he wanted to. Because he wanted to. <laughs> that, that won't satisfy <laughs> philosophy. You mean not much. God himself? Not much. God himself. Whatever it basically does in this first two criterion is wipes the table clean from all the philosophy answers and leaves you with the only possible answer that could actually work, which is for God himself. Um, he has two others. The third criterion is that the, um, the, the end of creation must manifest God's supreme regard for himself. So that's an inference he draws. And then finally, uh, it has to be achievable by creating the world. It has to be, you actually have to achieve it. Um, and so his answer, in summary, is God's acts of providence. Let me spike this up. God's acts of providence and redemption. This is like a step to list out. Providence and redemption. Providence and redemption being seen and known by creation. And not only being seen and known, but being loved and treasured by his creation. And then, after being loved and treasured, an emanation of God's glory to all eternity. And so that's Edward's answer, and everything we're going to say and everything this church is built on is... Is, uh, has its roots in Edward's dissertation at the end for which God created the world. God created the world to make known his glory. And so that's, I'm just going to walk through that in some steps now. Number one, God delights in God. Remember, this has to be happening before the creation of the world, right? So who is God delighting in before he creates the world? God's delighting in God. Yeah. God has always... And always will delight in himself and in his glory. God does all things in order that he would be seen and loved and made much of. And we see this in several categories. Number one, creation. Colossians 1.16, all things were created through him and for him. So everything that was created was created through God and for God. Redemption. Why did God redeem you on the cross? He predestines us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So the, in salvation, God's grace gets praised, right? That's what we do. We're saved, we're the sinners, and in, as a result, we praise God. Number three, sin and evil powers exist to magnify God. And it goes back to the same verse we just looked at. By him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or uh, rulers and authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And number four, finally, humans. Humans were created for God. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then Genesis 1.27, of course, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God is imaging himself when creating um, humans. And this culminates, I love this verse, 
The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a prophecy by Habakkuk. This is where we're headed. This is where we are in a sense. And God's glory is going to be made known in the world. John Piper says in seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, God did not create to get wealth. He created to display wealth. Isn't that beautiful? So God delights in God. I just want to show it first of all. Before the creation of the world, God was delighting in God. And in creating the world, God makes known his glory through creation. My next point is God commands you to be happy in God. We just saying rejoice, right? God commands you to be happy in God. And the reason is God gets more glory when you're happy in God than if you're just going by the book. He gets more glory when you're happy in God. Okay? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's the idea. God commands you to be happy in God. The way we give God the most glory is by being happy in him. His, his providence and acts of redemption being seen, known, loved, treasured. And so... God commands to be happy in him. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That's a command. Psalm 95, 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. You see that? The rock of our salvation. He's done something. And those things, seen, known, and responding with joy, Gives God glory. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. It's not enough that God and his attributes and his works just be seen and known correctly, but that they be seen, known, and rejoice in. Seeing, knowing, and acknowledging is just one of the steps in getting to the end for which God made you, which is to love him and to be happy in him. Um, God is glorified when you see him and treasure him. That's why he created the world. That's why he created you. So don't be just satisfied. I think this is one of the main points. Don't be just satisfied in, in understanding God, um, but press into that understanding until your heart responds in the miracle of rejoicing in God. D.A. Carson writes, oh yes, the love of God is not merely to be analyzed, understood, and adopted into holistic categories of integrated theological thought. This is one of the uh, lead New Testament scholars of evangelicalism. It's not just to be that. It is to be received, to be absorbed, to be felt. He says, meditate long and frequently on Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. It is far from clear that anyone can be a mature Christian who does not walk in this path. I thought that was a good quote by Carson, encouraging us to press into Scripture and to, um, to meditate on it and to receive it and to, be, and to feel it. So God commands you to be happy in God. Third point, joy in God is the only sustaining and satisfying good. You were, so what I'm arguing is, you were designed, 
this way. You were designed by God, the Creator, to be satisfied with God. It's how He made you, right? Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's how we were designed. You can't get fuller than fullness, and you can't get longer than forevermore, right? In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So when God commands you to be happy in God, he commands what is, your, is for your good. It's a blessing. Right? Um, I think understanding that is important. That when God commands you to be happy in God, He's commanding what's for your good. Uh, the, the best thing you can do for yourself is to be ha happy in God. Um, if you were to really believe that, how would, it, how would it shape your life, your schedule? How would you enact that belief if you really grasped it? If you really believe that, how would you enact that in your life? So joy in God is the only sustaining and satisfying good. Uh, next point, life is a fight to be happy in God. And we all know this, right? And if any of you have been walking the Christian walk, uh, you have felt uh, you want to be happy in God, but there's a tension there. And the fall affects all of our emotions, our affections, our loves. Um, the biggest frustration of a Christian um, is that so often our affections are being pulled in different directions, and they are not as affected with the things of God as we would like. That has been, from day one of my walk with God, the most frustrating thing, that my affections are not, are not in tune with the magnificent things I say I believe. The Bible is a magnificent book full of magnificent promises, displaying a magnificent God, and so often my, my affections are not even close to in tune with the things I cognitively affirm. And this is one of the biggest frustrations. And so the point is, life is a, a fight to be happy in God. We've got to fight the fight. And what God does is he gives the Holy Spirit to help us in our fight for joy. And it's part of the new covenant. The work of the Holy Spirit, he changes our affections, and we're transformed and reoriented to um, a place where they do find their joy in God. If you have any affections for God, it's the Holy Spirit. If you have the least amount of affection for God, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. No one says Jesus is Lord in me except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so take heart as you fight this fight. Do you have seeds in you of affections in God? Even those seeds are the evidence of a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. No matter how small they are. And so press into that and keep pursuing God. God changes hearts. He changes hearts. I've seen it. I've tasted it. This is what God does. Another quote from D.A. Carson on this point. This was good for me. Never, never underestimate the power of the love of God to break down and transform the most amazingly hard individuals. God's love so transforms us that we mediate it to others who are thereby transformed. We love because he first loved us. We forgive because we stand forgiven. That's in an article called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by Carson. Found some helpful stuff in that. And so... 
as we pursue this uh, love of God, this happiness in God, um, all of you know we pursue uh, spiritual disciplines, right? I've listed some of them here. Read, memorize, pray, fast from things of earth. Read biographies of men who love God deeply, stir your affections for him. Um, the more you spend time in the scriptures, the more you spend time looking at Christ, the more your tastes and affections will be oriented to him. And as a result, you will have more joy. The less time you spend meditating on and gazing at Christ through his word, the less your affections and tastes will be oriented towards him. If you don't look at him, study him, know him, don't expect your heart to love him. Right? So I want to, before we move on to, to my point of reaching out to others, I want to affirm this and just assume we're on the same page with this. You want to love God? Pursue God, right? Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give this ugly heart, right? Um, so press into these things. And now I'm going to lead to my main point. Um, as you pursue God and as you get filled with God, the Holy Spirit, it's going to lead you to a life of loving and serving others. It never stays in your prayer closet. Okay? Never stays in your prayer closet. Mature Christianity is in the prayer closet, gets filled up, and overflows to meet the needs of others in love. This is one of the marks of truly delighting in God. Someone who truly delights in God is going to overflow God. Godliness will flow out of you. Acts of love will flow out of you. Service will flow out of you. Self-sacrifice will flow out of you. Some texts, 1 John. Beloved, if God so loved us, we get filled with that. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So if God abides in you, you'll love one another. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Right? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Which is why I say uh, mature Christianity is filled and overflows. If it doesn't overflow, it's a, it's a, it's, it, might, it may say something about the genuineness of what you've been filled with. In this series, this fall, this winter, I want to emphasize that there is an outward-focused way of increasing your joy in God. And that's through loving and serving others in such ways that uh, includes them in the joy that you have in God. That's my emphasis. Um, every one of us are trained in America and wired to think that joy is found in serving yourself. That's how we're wired. Um, it's found in indulging ourselves, a life of comfort, a life of self-promotion, a life of being liked by others, and so on. And I want to argue that abundance of joy comes in a life spent for others. And that's how God designed it. Contrary to how we're changed. Genuine joy in God overflows to meet the others, the needs of others, even when it's costly. Especially when it's costly. And in reaching out to the needs of others, even when it's costly, your joy in God will increase. That's what I want to argue. Um, so you're filled with God. 
you overflow to meet the others, needs of others, and when you meet the needs of others, your joy in God increases. It doesn't decrease, which you might think would happen when it's costly, right? That's the instinct. And I think God has designed it, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, to operate it. So scriptural support, and then uh, we'll be done. I just have a few texts. Acts 20, 35. In all these things, in all things I have shown you, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The exhortation here is to work hard by helping the weak. The weak person doesn't benefit you by your helping them. There's no payment offered for your helping them. They are weak. And the command is to work hard to help the weak. Why? Because, remember what Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is more happiness, fullness, joy, more benefit in giving yourself, in spending yourself, sacrificing, than for accumulating for yourself. And this is the, the key text I have in mind as we move forward. Another one, Hebrews 10, 32 to 34. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you were enlightened, that's the order of things, right? You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession than abiding one. Um, so these Christians would partner with those being persecuted, and as a result, their property would be plundered. What led them to do that is that they knew they had a better possession than an abiding one, right? That promise is what had gripped them to be able to partner with people being persecuted and so get plundered because of that promise. This implies that the person is not overly attached to possessions, but to God. What do your partnerships say about your treasure? How do you respond to being plundered? If God is not your joy or your treasure, you will not spend your life in this way. Rather, you will make every effort to make sure that your comfort and possessions are preserved and maintained and protected from any sort of plundering. And I want to encourage us through this series to think like this, to be gripped like this. Paul says in Philippians 3, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And I have some just quick ones. Um, love seeks not its own, right? Let no one seek his own, but that of others. Let's just say interest. Um, this is an orientation that God is calling us towards, being oriented towards others. Romans 15, 1-3. to 
We who are strong have an ab obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so this is, this is what I'm arguing for. If this is how God designed it, then this should be the pursuit of our lives. Young adults, right? To be happy in God, and for that happiness to overflow in our pursuit of the happiness of others through acts of love and service, even when it's costly. Any other pursuit, I'm arguing, will leave you ultimately um, not satisfied. Ultimately not satisfied. Um, and I think it's this shows when um, the amount of depression and anxiety in America are through the roof in one of the most luxurious and comfort societies in history. Uh, and I think that's an evidence of God didn't design us for that, um, but to be happy in God and to serve others. The grace grant love, Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what I want to call us to. Um, um, we're young adults. We've been raised in America. Uh, we're oriented a certain way. And uh, I just want to press in on that, press in on what the scriptures say about that, and call us to a life of service. So in the next months, we'll be hitting things like, what does servant friendship look like? Or uh, we've never had a lesson on tithing or giving, something like that. Um, uh, intercessory prayer. Uh, evangelism um, and so we have some lessons like that coming up where we're gonna we're gonna flesh this out this is overview God so if, if someone tells you to do application never write this okay this is overview all right so this is a conviction now you want to take this conviction and you want to enact it in your life okay God made you as a, a being with hands and feet and a mouth to walk around the world, and so you want to take convictions and embody them as a Christian. You're light. You're light to the world. And so uh, from now on, I've called in elders to say, hey, uh, you're on board with this. Um, will you help us with some specific ways to embody this doctrine? Uh, help us look at friendship, not like, nor like most people look at friendship, but help us look at friendship in specific ways with this in the backdrop, servant friendship, something like that. However, uh, the speaker will uh, word it. Um, and so that's where we're headed. I'm really excited for it. This is not an area I would say I'm like I'm teaching because I got it. It's an area I'm eager to grow in. Eager to grow in. I want the joy that I just told you is found there. I believe these things, and I want to grow with you guys. So. Just make sure you consider me with you on board, uh, on the same plane. Let's let's go. Um, let's pray. Father, you've re revealed amazing things about yourself in Scripture. Amazing things. Um, it's. And a lot of us cognitively affirm them, and that's amazing. And um, our desires that our affections would rise to 
the truths that we know. We know we're not going to be perfect on that in this life. Um, but oh, I believe the Bible promises growth in this area. And so I ask that you would come through your spirit um, in the lives of us, the young adults here, and that you would stir our hearts to be genuinely affected with the things of God more than the things of the world. That as we interact with the world, we would find ourselves more in love with you through the interaction with the world. So I ask that you would do this and that the result, Lord, would be um, acts of love and service that are countercultural, not the way uh, we've been raised, but supernatural acts of love to where when we're plundered, we're not shaken, but we rejoice because we have a better possession, an abiding one, our inheritance with you. And so I ask that you would do this miracle and that you would use the lessons that are coming up and that you would use small groups and that you would use Sunday morning sermons and the men's ministry and the women's ministry. Um, so many gifts you've given us to serve our spiritual lives. I ask that you would bring spiritual fruit, which only you can do. We can sit in our classes. We can talk to our friends, but only you can give the growth. And so I ask that you would do that with young adults, with me, and that we would grow in this area, and there would be so much joy as a result. And we ask this in your name. Thank you for listening to this message from the Young Adult Ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church, North Campus, in Moundsview, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church slash young adults.